madness of coffee has now been captured in a cup. Before Starbucks, I think in the mid-70s, people were drinking really bad coffee. They were drinking instant coffee, Maxwell House U-Bend and perking it at home, and uh, it wasn't very good. <laughs> first cup of Starbucks coffee was? In the Pike Place store uh, in 1979-1980 was a French press of Sumatra. How much coffee is too much coffee? I, I drink about four to five cups of coffee a day. What do you say when doctors say if I drink coffee? To me, it's, they don't say that. <laughs> they don't say that. <laughs> first time, had never been in a Starbucks store, walked into this very store, and by the way, we have changed nothing through the years, this is the original store as is, and they handed me a cup of coffee made this way, now this is a cup of Sumatra, which is Indonesian coffee, this is how I tasted my first cup of coffee, and I just knew from that moment on that I was home. Of course, that's Howard Schultz, who is the um, CEO and uh, of Starbucks Coffee. Uh, you know, Starbucks. Uh, whether whether you like Starbucks or not, Starbucks has changed how coffee shops are presented in the United States, and it all flowed from the passion that that he had from coffee. He's got a book called "Pour Your Heart Into It" uh, that, that I'd encourage you to read. It, it's an interesting book as uh, as Schultz discovered Starbucks coffee. It, it changed his life, and he developed this passion. He's more more passionate about coffee than most people are about God, <laughs> to be honest. He's passionate about it, and it's driven him. He, he, um, he says this, care more than others think wise, risk more than others think safe, dream more than others think practical, expect more than others think possible. I don't know about you, but that would be a pretty good vision statement for a church. And, and this is about coffee. And so you, you see with Schultz, this passion for coffee has driven him to do some things that have been life-changing for people in the United States. And, and I guess as I, I presented that, that, the question I have for you is what drives you? What, what are you really passionate about? Maybe it's a person. Maybe you've met somebody and, and you're just passionate about that person and, and they've driven you. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's sports. I mean, I, all I have to say is OH. You crazy people. And, uh, you know, there's people in, in, that are, are passionate about sports. Hi, Eric. Yeah, Eric's passionate about sports. He loves sports of all sorts. Uh, but, but there's people there that are passionate about different things. That, you know, it drives them. Maybe, it's a, maybe you read a book, and the book made you passionate about something. I, I hope that in this place that, that we have many people that are passionate about God. That, that when I talk about God, we're passionate. When we sing about God, we're passionate about God. Pa passion can drive us in the right direction or the wrong direction. You guys understand that? that? That passion can drive you where you need to go, and passion can drive you where you don't need to go. Uh, I've got a confession to make. Um, I have a guilty pleasure 
I, I like forensic files. Anybody else there like forensic files with me? I like them, number one, because they're 18 minutes long and that matches my attention span. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but, but the true crime, you know, and just I, I love to watch them. And, and what's always fascinating in most of those, it, it's, it's the passion that has driven the action that makes the little show that we, we watch. Passion can drive us in the right direction or the wrong direction. And so as we talk about real love, as we, as we conclude our series and we begin to talk about what is real love, uh, one, one more week, uh, passion is something that defines real love. Now, now we've, we've looked at agape. Agape's been the focus of, of this series, this agape, unconditional, God-like love. It, it really is kind of funny when, when, when I think about this because you, you realize that this is a Greek word that most likely Jesus probably did not use. He probably used an Aramaic word. And we get caught up in these words and, and the words in the Gospels, but, but Jesus is not speaking a Greek language when he's teaching, but he's teaching in Aramaic and, and then some biographer is taking these words and translating them to Greek. So I, to me, I would always be interested to see what words Jesus actually used when he talked about these things. But agape is this Greek word. It's this unconditional God-like love. It's been amazing as we've begun this series. There's a, an insurance company that has a commercial out that talks about the four different kind of, of, of words or the four different Greek words which are interpreted love. Anybody seen that commercial other than me? It's been it's been a pretty been on quite a bit. God calls us to have this agape kind of love. That God calls us to love like God loves. And I, I believe that real love is our passionate response to God. That that love is a response to God. And so when we sing these songs. One thing that should happen in worship is not that somehow we're entertaining God or somehow we're pacifying God through our praise or, or, or somehow God, God needs us to, to, to build up His ego by praising Him. Uh, but, but, but in our praise, we begin to see who God is. That, that praise is less about God. You understand that? When we sing, it's less about us, less about God and more about us. That, that in our songs, I hope hope that we can begin to see this God that loves us, that has come for us, that is asking us to live for Him. And so we're, we're, we're talking about real love, and we're in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, answered him, uh, answered Jesus, what command is the foremost of all? In Mark 12, you have all sorts of challenges. You, you have uh, the tax question they ask Jesus. Is it, is it right for us to pay our taxes uh, to, to Caesar? And Jesus has them pull out a coin in the temple, and he asks whose face is on that coin. And they say Caesar, and Jesus, of course, responds, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God, give to God the things that are God, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, and and that is why they are so sad, you see. Um, <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. And, and they ask him the, um, 
the question, they say, okay, there's, there's seven brothers. The first brother marries this woman. He dies. They don't have any children. So the second brother marries this woman. She di he dies. They don't have any children. Third brother, and so on and so forth, until there's been seven brothers that married this woman. In the first service, I suggested that sounds like a Hallmark movie. That's more of a Lifetime movie, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You know, they're trying to trip Jesus up with this crazy scenario. And Jesus responds, in the resurrection, there is not marriage. And, and I think some people get all bent out of shape on that. Well, you know, he's not talking about relationship there. He's talking about legal obligation. And what they're talking about is legal obligation. And Jesus is saying, listen, in the resurrection, all these legal obligations you have to make your society move and go, they're not going to be present in the resurrection. Not that we won't have relationships that are eternal, okay? Some of you guys were going, well, Pastor, you just really, you ruined my out. Um, boy, that was not funny, but I thought it was funny. Okay, that's just for me. So they asked that question. He asked that question. Jesus answers them, and the, and the scribe acknowledges, well, you know, you've answered well. What's the greatest commandment? And, and unlike chapter 10 of Luke chapter 10, in Luke 10, a scribe asked Jesus the same question, and Jesus turns the question back on him. In this instance, Jesus answers the scribe's question. Jesus answered, the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And of course, Jesus is using two Old Testament passages. He's using Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 and Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 to answer this question. The first part is the Shema. And in this, Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, mind, and with all your strength. This is the, the first response Jesus gives. Uh, this is the Shema. And the Shema is a prayer that a good Jewish person would pray twice a day. Twice a day, they would stop in their day and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so Jesus is giving them something that is very familiar, that's part of their daily routine. As a matter of fact, it's, it's twice daily in their routine. Interesting. In Luke chapter 10, remember we just heard this passage a couple weeks ago. In Luke chapter 10, when the scribe answers Jesus, he does not include the preamble. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Matthew 22, when Jesus responds, once again, the preamble is not included in the response. And, and i got to tell you, I, I, I researched and I studied, and I never found anyone that, that really answered the question of why Jesus would include it here, and yet it wouldn't be included in the others. Um, moreover, I couldn't find anybody that would explain why this central part of the Shema... <laughs> 
the beginning of the Shema, because it's so essential, would not have been included in the Luke 10 passage or the Matthew 22 passage. This is a complete statement. This is a statement they would say every day. And the only, the only suggestion that I'd have is this, that this was such a part of that statement that it was implied. Or, or was such a part of the statement that when to not include, they didn't include it because they didn't think it was essential to us to understand what was being said. See, I believe this first part of this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is essential if we're going to understand the rest of the great commandment. To, to the Jewish people, the ideal of the supremacy of God, that, that God was worthy of worship, was what drove their response of love towards Him, is what drove their response of love towards others. And so it all began with this understanding that God was one Lord. It begins the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the following nine commandments are responses to who this God is. Loving God is a response to the Lord our God is one. And so we're called to respond by loving God with all that we are. Now it's interesting, in, in, in the time Jesus was present on earth, when, when, when he was in his earthly ministry, the, the common translation of the Hebrew scripture was a Greek translation. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The, the, the Bible that Jesus studied was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so 90% of the time when Jesus quotes Scripture, it seems that Jesus is quoting the Greek translation that was present when He was alive and ministering. In the Shema, it says, heart, soul, and strength. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. That the Greek translation that Jesus would have studied would have also said heart, soul, and strength. And yet, in this, in this passage, Jesus includes mind. It says love with your entire soul, heart, mind, and strength. Mind. The lawyer includes this language in chapter 10 of Luke as well. And so the question is, why does Jesus vary from the Scripture? He doesn't quote Scripture word for word, but he includes this word mind. And most scholars believe that at the time of Jesus, this was an awareness of the Greek understanding, or it was influenced by the Greek understanding, the importance of the mind, of being reasonable, of thinking. And that Jesus is using a passage or quoting a passage, including something with an eye towards his culture. Jesus spoke the language of his day. And it reminds us that God's word is ever alive. That God's word speaks to every culture and to every language. And that as we move through Scripture, if, if we get so caught up that we don't allow it to speak to the culture of our day, we're missing the point. And Jesus is simply furthering a common addition. That, that, that to understand this 
all-in nature of God, that to understand that we're thinking beings, that there's a mind at stake, and because of God, who, of who God is, we go all in. That we go in all in with our mind, with our soul, with our heart, with our physical body. And Jesus is calling to respond to God in that way. Now, when I hear this passage and I hear responding to God, my question becomes fearful obedience or devoted love. Uh, and, and, and I don't think this is an either or. I, I think this is a continuum. I, I think there is, a, there is fearful uh, obedience and then there's devoted response, devoted love. And, and I think there's a continuum. And, and so the question is, why, why do you give? Why, why do you serve? Why do you forgive? Well, why did you come in here today? Nothing on TV before noon on Sunday? You know, why, why do you go to Sunday school? Why, why, why do you praise? Why do you forgive? Why do you do the things that you do? So, some people see God as this all-powerful master, and God is all-powerful, right? Right? We, we acknowledge that. And, and, and they obey out of fear. That if I don't go to church, if I don't give, if I don't serve, that, that God is going to bring something bad on me. That, that he's going to punish me, that, that God is wrathful, and he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can smack us around. And we see God in this way. But to me, the best revelation of God is what? Jesus and when I look at Jesus, I don't see this wrathful, spiteful, waiting for me to mess up God. But I see someone who's come to my rescue that only wants my best, that wants healing, that wants wholeness. I love that song that we sing. It says, our God is a rob the grave. The, the truth is, folks, he didn't just rob the grave that Jesus was in. He's robbed your grave as well. <laughs> That, that when we sing those things, we celebrate not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that death has no call on us. That we have been set free. And this is the God that we respond to. That the God that would leave the 99 for the one, that the God that would send his one and only son, the God that would die on a cross in our place, that is the God we respond to with all that we have. I got Terry, uh, well, I didn't actually. It was our anniversary. And so I am really, really cheap. And all God's people said amen. I'm really, really cheap. When did anniversary cards and birthday cards start costing like $8? <laughs> you know, 50 cents or a dollar should be the top for a card as far as I'm concerned. Anything above. And so I made Terry an anniversary card. I got pictures and put, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the best. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, I'm cheap more than anything. But I made her an anniversary card. And I gave her that anniversary card not because I was afraid she would smack me around if I didn't, okay? You wouldn't have, would you? But I did it because I love her. And my response to her is not out of fear, but out of love. Um, God calls us to respond to him out of love. I believe the mature response to God is love based on who he is. You know, the scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. 
And I think in that scripture, what it's trying to get us to understand is God is trying to move us past where, where you know, not that we're not respectful of God, not that we don't hold God in reverence, but we hold him with this sense of love, passionate love that drives us and calls us to just give everything to him. But our response is not limited to God. Jesus goes on, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and God invites us to love him by loving others. He says, as you do for the least of these, you have done for me. In 1 John it says, how can you love God if you hate your brother? So, so God invites us to love him by loving others. In fact, our response to others is our response to God. Um, when that person cut you off in traffic last week, you didn't honk your horn at them, you honked your horn at God, okay? <laughs> when, when that waitress or waiter wasn't quick enough to, to get you your food and you complained or you stiffed them on the tip, you didn't stiff a waiter or a waitress, you stiffed God. That's how God sees people. You, you understand that, right? That, that God sees everyone as these dearly loved children and an offense to them as an offense to Him. You know, I'm a, a father and a husband. And uh, I've got two, three boys. And now I guess I've got two daughters, right? You, well, I know. I'm not asking her. What you say or do to my kids... Or my wife is worse than anything you could do to me. <laughs> you could say almost anything to me, and it would be like, whoop, all right, whatever. Trust me, in the practice of law, I've heard everything. Sometimes in the church, I've heard everything. But what you say about my kids? Our Heavenly Father sees your brothers and sisters on this place in the same way. And the things we do and the things we say about them is a response to God. In relationships, I think it's good to be reminded that God loves blank as a child. And I'm going to invite you to say this with me. And you can fill in the name. If it's somebody sitting next to you, probably not, okay? Don't, you know, God loves Neil as much as me. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's, let's not have any fistfights in the sanctuary. Uh, but I want you to think about that person you're struggling with. That, that person you struggled with last week, that person you're going to struggle with this week, this ideal of loving them means that we see them like God sees them. And so let's say this together. You don't have to say the name. You can just think the name. God loves as a child. Can you say that with me? Nobody did. God loves as a child. That person you're struggling with most, God loves dearly. God sent his son for that person that's causing you the most trouble. And God calls us. To respond to him, who he is, by loving him with all that we are. And he calls us to respond to him, not only by loving him with all that we are, but loving our neighbors in the same way we love ourselves. Goes on. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. 
And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. It's interesting that we begin this series where we, we end this series where we began the series. This ideal of not being far from the kingdom of God. We began this series with Nicodemus and Jesus saying, you've got to have fresh baby eyes. You've got to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And now we see this leader who is seeing the kingdom because he's beginning to understand that it's about responding to God with love, responding to others with love. And so what is the kingdom? The kingdom is that place where God has rule and reign. That is a simple definition of the kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is this place in your life, in my life, in this community's life, where God has rule and reign, where God speaks and people respond with obedience, where God says love and people love, when God says give and people give, when God asks us to serve and we serve. That is the kingdom of God. Now, now there is a coming time where God's kingdom will come in full. But in the meantime, we live in this place in history where God's kingdom can break in when we say yes to God. And that's why Jesus can pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is inviting his followers to understand that this isn't a wait and see kingdom, but it's a here and now kingdom to the point we say yes to God. And to the point we say yes to God, His beauty and His grace and His love and His compassion and His wholeness, His shalom, His fullness can break through. Now, in this passage, Jesus uses the Shema and He says, the, the Lord our God is one. And some see a new Shema in the writings of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this, the Lord our God is one can be trans, tr translated, the Lord our God is unified. There is a unity in, in the Lord our God. As a matter of fact, m most Trinitarians, Christians, when, when they're talking to Jewish folks about being converted to Christianity, one of the big hang-ups is this Trinitarian aspect of God. And, and most Christians will take this passage and say, no, it doesn't say one, it says unified. And so Christians have historically understood that, that this word means both one and unified. And so in, in the New Testament you have many places where there seems to be a new Shema being presented. John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says things like, may they be one with each other as we are one, Father. May, may there be a unity between them and us. May, may we all be united together. Some believe Paul was providing a reformulation of the Shema in his response to Jesus in Ephesians where he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, through all, and in all. 
In other words, this, this Shema response, the Lord our God is one, or the Lord our God is unified, is a call for our, an understanding that God is calling us to partake fully in the kingdom. To be full of His Spirit, and as we're full of His Spirit, that we become one with Him, one with each other, one with the historical church, one with the future kingdom, that there is a unity that God is calling us to. And so we respond by being one in Him, through Him, with each other, through love. You know, there, there's principles throughout this book and throughout our stories and our theologies that are highly significant and highly repetitive. And, and unity and oneness is one. <laughs> that, that, that is a common theme that you see throughout this story. And, and so it's, it's not an accident that Jesus established this rite of Holy Communion. It's, it's not some accidental thing or fluke thing or it's, it just seemed like a cool thing to do that we practice the sacraments, that, that we receive communion because communion has such significance. Now, number one, communion is a response, right? That, that when we see the elements, we're reminded of what Jesus has done in our place and we respond to God through what we call communion or Eucharist or Thanksgiving. We say, thank you, God, that you have united us with, with you, right? And it's also a testimony. And it's a testimony that as we receive the elements, number one, that we're one with the historical church, <laughs> That throughout history, throughout time, across the globe, there are churches receiving the same feast today. And we're giving testimony that although we may look different, we may speak different, we may even have some different takes on who God is, we are one. One faith, one hope, one God. And we're declaring this in receiving this feast. And not only are we one with the historical church and the future church and one with God, but we're one with each other. That we come to a table where Christ sets at the head of the table. And as Christ sets at the head of the table, we are united 